Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 17 and 25 through 29. We are just a couple of generations after King David, and boy, howdy, kingship in Israel is not going great. As David's grandson Rehoboam steps to the throne, we see parallels with the stories of Pharaoh in Egypt, a king who uses forced labor to control people, and who seeks power and dominance above all else, even when that is politically impractical. And then we meet Jeroboam who seems to smartly identify a real vulnerability for his community, but then tries to patch it with a sort of quick fix borrowed from another religious culture. Definitely a no-no. Both kings consult advisors, but neither consult God. This is pretty much exactly what the Deuteronomistic history warned us about. Thanks for being with us. Hey Bobby, how are you? Hey Amy, I'm I'm good. My spouse has been out of town since a few days ago. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, like, Do you I have, like say, a child under your desk or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when they're in school, it's great because you know. But the like, I will say that I have come to appreciate in new and profound ways all the wonderful things that my spouse does mm-hmm. when we're all at home together. And I love my children, and also. 24 hours a day of me and my children is a lot of hours. It's many hours. So if I'm a little off today, that's, I mean, more off than usual. That's the reason, maybe, is because (laughs) I'm a little bleary. Yeah. I'm a little bleary. No, I hear that. It's hard when they're little. It really is hard when they're little. I had a funny, funny maybe thought this morning. Remember when the first season, I think, of this podcast, we called it NLDR? Yeah. And this is what was funny to me. So that was supposed to stand for like, it was supposed to be like TLDR, which is too long, didn't read. Like, I'm going to give you a summary. Yeah. But it was NL because it was narrative lectionary. But what's so funny about me is we make everything so much longer. Like, (laughs) I didn't have time to read these 15 verses, but I'm totally going to listen to Bobby and Amy talk about it for four hours. Yeah. No, No, it's true. There is an irony there that that our our pithy (laughs) summary of a 10 verse text is often like a, an hour. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not pithy. We're not known for our pith. The way that I thought about NLDR was like, you don't have to go and like do the research and like find the commentaries and like all of that stuff. We did all oh, that, that work for you. Sense. And yeah. then here it is. Bible worm like just means, <laughs> I don't know, like we're a little slimy and we make our way slowly through mm-hmm. the soil of the biblical garden. Mm-hmm. And we aerate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop thinking of the worm analogy because it gets <laughs> gross after a while. Yeah. Uh, Bobby, today in the Bible worm, we are in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12. Yes. Um, we'll read verses 1 to 17 and then 25 to 29. When last we spoke, we were not so, so far from here. We were in 2 Samuel. Yeah. And we were reading about sort of the early days of King David. Yeah. What would you like our listeners to know that has happened between then and now? You know, in my class right now at Hendricks, we're talking about the Deuteronomistic history, which is also where we are in the Bible worm, in the narrative lectionary. The reason I say that is because the Deuteronomistic history, which is sort of Joshua through 2 Kings, except for Ruth, has this tension about the value of the monarchy, 
Mm-hmm. And all the way through, you sort of see these stories about, do we need a king or do we hate having a king? Does God like our king <laughs> or does God punish us for our king? Yeah. You see it with Saul, like he rises up and then he gets deposed. Yeah. You also see it with David in a different way. Where we were last time, he was riding high on the you know newly coronated kingship wave. And then terrible things start to happen. There's the Bathsheba incident that we talked about last year on the podcast, and then his kids start doing all this crazy stuff to each other and revolting <laughs> against him. And so his, his life kind of has this upward and then downward trajectory. His son, Solomon, likewise has this kind of upward downward trajectory. And so he becomes God's uh, chosen King to follow David. He builds the temple. He has this amazing beginning to his rule. But then at the very end of Solomon's rule in chapter 11 of first Kings, he, it says he married a lot of foreign women. He came under the influence of Canaanite practices and God becomes angry with him and says, look, I am going to take the kingdom away from you, but I promised you that I wouldn't take the kingdom away from you. So like, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Ah, I can take it away from your son. And so in first Kings 11, we have this moment where God through a prophet says, I'm going to take away 10 of the tribes of the kingdom of Israel, the united monarchy from you, and I'm going to give them to Jeroboam, who in 1 Kings 11 is a guy who works for King Solomon Mm -hmm. as sort of the organizer of the forced labor that Solomon has instituted in Israel. So this text today that we pick up with in 1 Kings 12 is the story of how Solomon has died at the end of chapter 11. And this is the story of how the kingdom gets split in two. And that that guy, Jeroboam, who God gave the promise to, is going to be one of the main characters, along with Rehoboam, who is Solomon's uh, son. Why are there so many Boams? Boams. What does that mean? Is it like, you know, you're Williamson, I'm Robertson. What's Boam? I mean, Rahav, yeah. Rahav means like wide or expansive or something, uh-huh. right? And Am yeah. is people. So the people uh-huh. are expansive. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like maybe <laughs> we're talking a little bit out of our worm. Wormholes. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you entertaining that uh, very random stream of consciousness question. And now we will get back to the serious, the serious work of this text. It's a little crazy how important. King David is in the biblical memory and in certainly in the Jewish community's memory and maybe also the Christian community's memory of this history when like his actual kingship is not that long because he only lives one human life. (laughs) And, And then things really fall apart pretty quickly after that. So we are picking up really right in the moment when, you know, push is coming to shove here. Yeah in chapter 12. So I think I'm just going to, I'm just going to dive in and we'll see what happens. Yeah. The one thing, one other thing to say is that we're only about maybe 75 or 80 years or something down the line since our last text on your previous point. Like this thing, actually that the United Monarchy has lasted two Kings and it's lasted Mm -hmm. about less than a century, about 80 years. And then this is, this is it falling apart. So yeah, you're exactly right about that. Okay, so I'm picking up in 1 Kings chapter 12, and I am reading from the NJPS. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to acclaim him as king. Jeroboam, son of Nevat, learned of it while he was still in Egypt, for Jeroboam had fled from King Solomon and had settled in Egypt. They sent for him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam as follows. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke which your father laid on us, and we will serve you. He answered them, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. So it says in verse one that all Israel had come to acclaim Rehoboam as king. Yes. Is Rehoboam already king? Like, do you see this as like a celebration of something that is already true? Or uh, is this like part of a coronation process? What's the significance of this gathering? As you That's the way it? I think about it is it's part of the coronation process. So, you know, it's not that long ago that King Charles was coronated. 
like everybody knew he was going to be the king, mm-hmm. but technically speaking, he wasn't the king, right? Until that coronation made him the king. That's mm-hmm. the way I read this is Rehoboam is the heir. And so he is going to be the king, mm-hmm. but he has not been officially declared so. And so mm-hmm. that's what he's done here. I think, is that how you read that? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I, I think that really draws out how sort of like, it's not at all a given that there's any kind of negotiation that should be happening at this coronation. Right. Like this is kind of just, everybody knows he is to be king and we're just here to sort of, you know, put on our fancy hats and yeah. celebrate. Yeah. And so it is a little chutzpah maybe for these Northern kingdoms to yeah. come and say, we are willing to serve you, but there's a condition. I think that's right. And, you know, you were just saying how the monarchy is only two kings old. So we've only been, I mean, if you don't count Saul, which who yeah, counts Saul? Saul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're only two kings in and it has not yet settled into this sort of expectation or like automatic transfer of power. And we talked last time about the tensions between the North and the South that were there in the time of David. And David through his charisma and through his sort of strategic thinking had pulled together two people who were not necessarily easily aligned. Solomon was able to do that too. He seems to have done it sort of through an exertion of power by the end of his reign, just saying like, I'm going to make, make you all work for the good of the United monarchy. And so there's, this is a moment of, are we just going to assume that this trajectory continues or Mm -hmm. do we, as the people, the Northern people retain some right to consent or not consent? I think Rehoboam maybe thinks that they don't actually have the right to do anything, but they themselves Mm -hmm. think like, we need, we just need a little give so we can, but it is interesting too, that they frame it as we're coming. Like we want it. We want you to be our King. Yeah. But we just need a little bit. We need you to give us a little bit. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, you know, that Jeroboam in particular, who has been told, as you were saying in the introduction, he's been told in the previous chapter that he's going to be given 10 of the tribes because this is being torn away from the ancestor the descendant, sorry, of Solomon. It's a little surprising to me that Jeroboam leads with, we are willing to serve you, but there's a condition. Yeah. So Jeroboam, for all the problems with Jeroboam, and there will be problems, this is not an aggressive stance to take, given that that context that we already know about him. That's, that's interesting to think about what, is in Jeroboam's mind. He sort of knows what has been prophesied and so how this thing is going to play out. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, is in this text is the confluence of divine will, prophecy, and human activity and how they're related to each other. We, we'll need to talk about that more as we go along, but we do have a divine imperative here or a divine prophecy here it has already kind of determined the outcome of what's going on in this text, even though the people themselves are still like working it out. Yeah. That happens in such interesting ways in these monarchy stories. Like we saw when the, the kingdom has been, God has taken the kingdom from Saul, but the people don't know that. So the people still thought Saul was King, but God had, or like it, it's, it gets very messy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets very messy. And in a way, you're right. We are in that moment because God has already said Jeroboam is going to get these 10 tribes in this generation. Yeah. But the people don't know that. That's interesting. So God has rejected Rehoboam, but really Solomon in yeah. a very similar way to the way God rejected Saul earlier. And Jeroboam here is almost playing the David role, at least at the beginning of this text, as the new chosen king who's going to receive. Mm-hmm. I had not, I had not thought of it that way, but that that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the the northern folks, the ten tribes, state their state their case. Yeah. <laughs> what their needs are, what they what they're willing to do, and then again, like I'm not a fan of Rehoboam's <laughs> in the long run here, but his immediate response 
there's there's a lot of wisdom in it. Mm-hmm. Like he was not expecting this to be a time when there would be negotiating about yeah. anything. He thought yeah. they were just going to sing his praises and blow some trumpets and yeah. call him king. And he's been presented with this situation, yes. but he does not respond with anger. And he does not, you know, he does not tell him to go take a hike. He mm-hmm. says, give me three days mm-hmm. to think about what you're saying. And that, that was good. That, is that good. was good right there. We'll pull out the good. That was good, Rehoboam. <laughs> yeah, good job, Pause Rehoboam. there. Because yeah. he had to have had feelings about the people on his coronation day. Oh, my gosh. Can you even imagine? Making it conditional. Like if King Charles had showed up on his coronation day and like half the people at the cer- ceremony were like, uh, can we hold on just a minute, please? And we need yeah, some concessions I mean, before we continue through this thing. Like that would have been something. This is kind of what's happening right here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, are you ready to move on? Is there anything else you want? The to only other thing I would say about this is just that Rehoboam went to Shechem and different people get coronated in different places. For David, it was in Hebron. For Solomon, it was in Gihon, I think. Here it's Shechem. And so the question of why Shechem did Rehoboam choose, two stories occur to me. One is all the way back in Genesis 12, when God gave the land to Abraham as a promise, this was the first place that Abraham Mm. went. So this is like the place of the originary establishment of the people of Israel which could be a way of honoring their their unity, or it could be a way of sort of asserting, like, I am the legitimate inheritor of this promise that has been given to you. And so therefore, I am the the only legitimate one. I don't know how you would read that. And then the other story is Abimelech in Judges 9, I think it is, who declares himself the king and murders a bunch of people. That story also takes place at Shechem. So this... It is a loaded, like that That place is loaded in the story of Israel. Yeah. And it's interesting too, that it's in the North. It is. Yeah. You know, he's gone up to the North. He didn't stay in Jerusalem, which was, you know, the, there's sort of Washington DC, somewhat neutral area. And he's not yeah. down in Judah. He goes into the, the Northern tribes territories. Yeah. Which could have been seen as, as a, good kind of outreach but maybe yeah it could be i'm willing to come to your place and acknowledge that your place is also honor. our place. yeah your place is our place and yeah. you could read it as a an assertion of dominance yeah that right. i this is my this is mine now so i can come here and yeah get, throw my parties throw my party in your house and i don't know which and it could be both of those at the same time right that yeah. you know it is both conciliatory but also it's only conciliatory as long as the conciliation is welcomed. So there's a lot, there's a tension here that is, a, you can see it in the text. And also it's, it's deeper here, I think too, than, than what you might first recognize. Hi, I'm Julie Holm. I'm the pastor of a small rural community in the UCC and the ELCA, the Brush Valley Fusion of Faith. I was an early Patreon supporter because I loved the podcasts on the Narrative Lectionary, but this year I became a Bible study and liturgy supporter. I'm part-time, and I love that I don't have to spend hours preparing for our Bible study every week. Plus, my group just loves Bobby's Bible studies. The liturgy also gives me a real heads up on putting a worship service together, which I appreciate as a part-time pastor. Amy's responses, both as a deep Bible scholar of her scriptures and as a novice to the Christian scriptures, deeply inform new ways of looking at scripture, and I really appreciate that. I love Bible Worm, and I'm so glad to support it. All right, shall we see what this deliberatory process looks like for the next three days? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to pick up in verse six. King Rehoboam took counsel with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. He said, what answer do you advise me to give this people? They answered him, if you will be a servant to those people today and serve them, 
And if you respond to them with kind words, they will be your servants always. But he ignored the advice the elders gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. What, he said, do you advise that we reply to the people who said to me, lighten the yoke that your father placed upon us? And the young men who had grown up with him answered, speak thus to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us. Say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. My father imposed a heavy yoke on you and I will add to your yoke. My father flogged you with whips, but I will flog you with scorpions. Those are very different trajectories of advice. (laughs) They're two very different approaches to the problem. Okay, good. Okay, let's, uh, we can look at them one at a time here. So first, first he consults with the elders. And, you know, I have always read this response from the elders as, you know, this is wise and right. Like, yes, you know, this is what you should do, which I still think it is. But I, I noticed in this reading that it's, it's pretty clearly not like do this because it's the right thing. Like Solomon mm. was actually wrong to impose undue burdens on the Northern tribes, mm. which he did, mm-hmm. <laughs> but do this because it will have the best political outcome for you. That's interesting. Cause I was also reading it as very, as very wise, but you're right. It's, it is wise in the sense of you've got to give a little in order to continue forcing the people to labor just maybe yeah. not quite as much as you've been forcing them to labor. Right. The best outcome for you mm-hmm. is to have some labor for them and not no right. labor. I don't know. It's interesting to me that also their response places the whole thing kind of in terms of this like servant servitude thing, yeah. which is how which is how they pose the question sort of. Yeah. But their answer isn't give them what they want but be a servant to them today and serve them and then they will serve you. So like it, it's not about loyalty or fairness or like it's, it's really all ego and power. Like who is on top? Let them be on top today. And then you get to be on top forever, which is clearly the better deal, but none of it has any reference to real, to the kind of thing that we would want a King to be thinking about. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, what Solomon did to the Northern tribes and what uh, the people are complaining about here sounds an awful lot like what Pharaoh was doing to the Israelites in Egypt when we read back in Exodus chapters Mm -hmm. one and two. It's not slavery exactly, but that first step that Pharaoh had made, let's force them to work for us. That Mm -hmm. seems to be kind of where Solomon had ended up. And so here the decision is, do I continue that or do I not continue that? And I think that God had, the people had hoped that maybe we would be able to establish some different kind of like society that didn't have forced labor at all. What the older folks here are proposing is let's continue that sort of Pharaoh system, just lightening it up enough to stay in power. Yeah. It's like, let's be politically realistic. And I guess if they were the advisors to Solomon, we shouldn't expect them to suddenly be concerned about loyalty and godliness because that's that's not how they were raised. Now, I think that detail is important, Amy, that they're not just older. They are people who served under Solomon. And so they've been in position of power for a long time. Yeah. And maybe they're thinking about how to preserve not just Rehoboam's power, but their own power. Right. That's what they they know how to do. They know how mm-hmm. to hold on to power. Their their advice is, I think, in its in its end point, very wise, mm-hmm. and in its motivation, deeply political. Yeah. All the northern tribes have really asked for is for to lessen their workload, not get rid of it altogether. So yeah. they just want some relief from what they've been doing under Solomon, and you know the the older group here actually gives them is wanting to give them what they asked for. I think like maybe the people should have asked for more. I don't know, but you know, they are responding in that sense, like listen to them and give them what they want. 
and this is a way for us all to stay in power. Okay. And then we have (laughs) Rehoboam's childhood friends. (laughs) Yeah. Can you draw out anything, anything at all from their response that doesn't just sound like teenage (laughs) posturing? No, I mean, this is, this is political power by slogans. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's nothing here of substance as far as I can read it. I mean, I think that what maybe what is of substance is, I don't know that this is a very good substance, but the older group has basically said the way you earn the people's loyalty is by showing that you're willing to give a little. Mm-hmm. This younger group says the way you force people to be loyal to you is by showing them that you are more powerful than they are. Mm-hmm. And so we've got two very different sort of strategies for how one maintains control of a population. And so their advice is just show them who's boss. And they do it in this very sloganistic way mm-hmm. uh, that you could not, you know, put on the campaign posters or whatever. That one, that <laughs> the line where they, I mean, in your translation was my little finger mm-hmm. is thicker than my father's loins. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. The mm-hmm. CEB has my baby finger is thicker than my father's waist. The word finger is not actually in the Hebrew. It's just my little one. And mm-hmm. so like, this is very clearly a penis reference, right? Can I say mm-hmm. penis on Apple podcasts? I don't know. Yeah, it's not yeah. Penis is just an, an anatomical reference. Yeah. Clearly like my little, my little penis is bigger than my father's like thigh basically is mm-hmm. what they've said. And so they're like, they're even using locker room humor here. And I'll show you, you know, who is better endowed. And you think you've, you think you've seen power. Well, I'll show you, I'll show you yeah. real power. What else do you see there? It made me wonder what I see is my question. <laughs> it made me wonder whether there is anything, what could the Northern kingdom, fo- I mean, it's not the Northern kingdom yet, but the Northern tribes, Jeroboam and his folks, is there a different way they should have gone about this? Like, it doesn't seem like what they're asking for is unreasonable. And, but clearly it has awoken some kind of, you know, ego power Uh situation. I don't know. It just feels like it was such a gentle request. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand why, like they didn't come in in an argumentative way. I just don't understand other than thinking of, of these guys basically as teenagers who are just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like there was nothing reasonable about this response. It was just, I have all the power and like, you know, Raw, raw. Yeah, there's a couple of things going on in there, Amy. I think you're onto the right set of questions. When we're talking today, it's seeming to me like I'm just remembering the way that the Pharaoh story is told in sort of Exodus mm-hmm. one to five. If you remember in that story, Moses and the Israelites come to Pharaoh and say, "Just let us go three days into the wilderness to worship God." And Pharaoh's That's like, right. "No, I'm going to make you work you're even exactly harder." Exactly right. They don't say. We're leaving forever. And, <laughs> right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And we had that text that we talked about a couple of weeks ago now where Pharaoh was saying, I'm a, we're afraid of them. What if they rise up? The way to control them is by making them work harder. Mm-hmm. So the, the impulse here from Rehoboam's comrades is mm-hmm. very similar to mm-hmm. what we experienced in the biblical Egypt Mm-hmm. about the way to resolve conflict with the other is to demonstrate that you are more powerful and to force them to work. And this sort of gentle, like, I mean, I don't know what the Northern tribes mm-hmm. really have in mind. Maybe maybe they really are going to revolt and that's why they've got right. Jeroboam there. Like, I don't know. Maybe they've just said, let us go three days into the wilderness. You know, and wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, and so maybe these younger folks are on to onto something, they actually realize that this is a disingenuous offer from the Northern tribes. There's nothing in the text, but I think it, I think you can read it either way. And the fact that they called Jeroboam back from Egypt before they made this request kind of makes, makes you wonder. And so I think they're fearful. I think they're suspicious. I think they, they think power is the way to control. 
very much like Pharaoh. The other thing is you were referencing to the teenage, teenage companions of Rehoboam, which is how they come across here. But if you follow the biblical chronology, Rehoboam is 41. Mm. And so he's like, it's like his middle-aged <laughs> comp- yeah. compatriots, you know? Yeah. And so, I don't know, maybe they should know better by now. You know, it's not like they're, you know, getting out of high school classes and like showing off. It's like they've been around. So, yeah. So the other thing is the translation, you're, all the translations I've seen, the ones who grew up with him, the word there is Godlu, which can also mean who became great with him Mm. or who came to power with him. And I've been toying with maybe whether that's the better way to read it. So it's not his childhood friends, but it's the ones who have come into power in his orbit. And so they're the fresh faces in the governmental structure, whereas the people that Rehoboam was talking to previously were the ones who'd been in power for a whole previous regime. So maybe it has something to do with the like newness of access to power. Right. No, I mean, I I think that, you know, in my head, I was critiquing the elders before sort of as, you know, what they suggest is politically smart and reasonable, but doesn't really have any reference to the kind of values that God might want the political leaders to be thinking about. Fine. And then this next generation, it's sort of gone another level where I love your comparison to Pharaoh because it's it's like they're encouraging Rehoboam to like think of himself as God. Mm. Like you, you must have all the power yes. because you are God-like. So it has gone from a king who is who sees himself as like a servant of God to a king who doesn't have a whole lot of reference point to God, but is an okay ish politician. I don't know. To now a king who wants to be God. Like it's really, it's going off the rails here. Which is exactly what Deuteronomy said was going to happen when you got a king. It's exactly what Deuteronomy said would happen. One other thing here is this, I'll I'll discipline you with scorpions always draws people's attention. And I mean, one way of reading that Mm -hmm. is, is like throwing little. I'm going to throw scorpions at you, which is terrible. Yeah. Uh, There is also a line of thought that a scorpion is a reference to a barbed whip. Mm-hmm. And so not just like a regular whip, but now I'm going to add barbs that's going to hurt even more. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a probably a more reasonable reading of it, but it's not as cool as like flogging people with a stinging <laughs> <laughs> desert yes. creature. No, it is probably more reasonable, but just the word scorpion gives me yeah. the chills. <laughs> yeah, for real. For real. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know that the, the anticipation is killing you. Should we see what Rehoboam chooses? <laughs> Let's do. Okay, so I'm picking up in verse 12. Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, since the king had told them, come back on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, ignoring the advice that the elders had given him. He spoke to them in accordance with the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father flogged you with whips, but I will flog you with scorpions. The king did not listen to the people, for the Lord had brought it about in order to fulfill the promise that the Lord had made through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered the king, We have no portion in David, no share in Jesse's son. To your tents, O Israel. Now look to your own house, O David. So the Israelites returned to their homes, but Rehoboam continued to reign over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. Okay, so it starts out again, like Jeroboam and the people are doing what the king had told them, come back on the third day. The text, I feel like, goes out of its way to point out that the king is not doing what the elders said, both by just saying, you know, ignoring the advice that the elders had given him, but even just by saying, answer the people harshly when part of the advice from the elders was specifically respond to them with kind words. Yeah. He really, he goes all in on the other option. Yeah, he does. (laughs) (laughs) To his credit, he doesn't make the penis reference, but- Otherwise, he goes all in on the other option. That is true. He does not make the penis reference. 
Hmm. Maybe he thought even thought that even he thought that was a little bit over the top. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> okay, great. So he showed a little bit of restraint. <laughs> The first question that comes to my mind, because so much of what it reports here is like pretty much just exactly from, you know, the advice that the the youngins had given him, the younger Mm -hmm. advisors. My verse 15 is in parentheses. This part Uh, where it's like the narrator's voice saying the king did not listen to the people. It's yours in parentheses. It's not. I mean, as you know, like the Hebrew text wouldn't mark such. Yeah, a thing. the Hebrew text wouldn't mark. This is a you know an editor's. Yeah, it's interesting choice. if you put it in. I guess it's like, yeah, like when the narrator. It is. I mean, exactly the narrator coming in to give us an explanatory note. So parentheses make sense there. Just in case you don't know what's going on, dear reader, let me remind you. Yeah, my little um, not little, but the the study Bible that I use, the Jewish study Bible has a note that says the author's theological comment on the illogical turn of events. Hmm. I guess because it, I mean, we already knew how this story was going to turn out, but it really is, it's pretty shocking that Rehoboam went with the advice. It is. It went, is. went with this advice. And so the text wants to make sure that we know that this was all preordained. You it's know? so interesting. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But then, I mean, not to be overly political, but we live in a historical moment in which slogany advice about flexing one's muscles that comes from newly minted people of power yeah. is not unfamiliar to us. No, that is true. This happens kind of weirdly like a lot. Yeah. So like, I don't actually need, like I can make perfectly good sense of this story without God being invoked right there. Like, this is what new kings do. And this is what people who just come into power do. And this is what people who are like, hey, look what I can do. Like, they got good slogans. They got some power. They're a little full of themselves. Like, Mm. this is kind of the way it goes. The invocation of God there, again, reminds me a lot of the Pharaoh story. The king didn't listen to the people because of God. And in the, in the Pharaoh story, Pharaoh doesn't listen because God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so this sort of idea that the political machinations of humans and the divine prerogative of God are often intertwined in the biblical text in this interesting way that you can make sense of it with, without invoking God, Mm -hmm. but the biblical text wants to insist that this is, this is all in keeping with what God had preordained. Yeah. And so there's both a human element and a divine element to this rejection. I love that you keep bringing up. Well, I love to keep bringing up the Pharaoh story because I think that is such a helpful, just such a helpful background narrative to have in mind in comparison. And I'm a little disturbed that you brought up modern politics because that that stings, Bobby. <laughs> it does. It does. It stings like a scorpion. But yeah, no, you're you're right. It does in our own modern context this makes perfect sense you don't have to say like how could a king what king would ever behave this way well it's amazing to me you know like in some some ways the bible is a very strange document that comes from a very different world and some of the things it talks about are hard to relate to as a modern person but when it talks about the ways that people relate to power it is often for me just like the the division between then and now is so thin. Like that is the way people relate to power. And we still see these kinds of things. And you can go all all back through human history and find the exact same stuff. Biblical text is so insightful about that. Bobby, you mentioned, you know, as you were doing your introduction, that we are not far historically from the time that, uh, that the kingdom first became to be one, that that we first joined the Northern and Southern right. kingdom together. And so it's, it's not, it's not, there is still a memory among the people oh, yeah. that this is not a given. And at this moment, it says when, when Israel saw that the King had not listened to them, they do this little like chant, maybe it's not a chant, but I mean, it, uh, this it's in verse 16. We have no portion in David, no share in Jesse's son. To your tents, O Israel. 
Now look to your own house, O David. That has come Mm -hmm. up before in the biblical text. Say more about that. So in 2 Samuel chapter 20, there is this guy named Sheba, son of Bichri, who chants the same thing. And he's, it's at this sort of moment of rebellion that had mm-hmm. the potential to split the kingdom. And he's, he's trying to fuel that rebellion by saying exactly the same thing. Yes. Like David's kingdom does not care about us. Yes. And so, so go home, Israel. Like stop following this king around. He doesn't care about you. Yes. And so it's, it feels very like it, it tugs at my heart that these, you know, however many decades it is later, the people still, they remember these words yes. that were said by this rebellious guy. I mean, and, and in second Samuel, the guy is quickly killed. Like it's, he, he does not start a big rebellion, but his rallying cry has, has remained in the memory of the people. Like that fear that he articulated so clearly, you have no portion here. None yeah. of this is yours. It just, for me, it just, it, it again, just like underscores the whole unraveling of, of, of the kingdom that was just stitched together. No, that's so helpful, Amy. And, you know, yeah, I like the phrasing of stitched together because there really are these, uh, I don't even know if alliances may be too strong. Like it has been an uneasy unity from the very beginning. And we saw that with the Hebron story and how David consolidated his power. And then this rebellion you're talking about, Absalom revolted against David even. Mm -hmm. And then Solomon sort of consolidated power by exercising strength but the tension is still there. And now when it finds the opportunity. And so here we see two people groups that, I mean, I think in theory could become a united people and could live in this kind of vision that God had laid out back in Deuteronomy. But the realities of power and of economics and of loyalties just makes it explosive and it keeps, it keeps coming back. And they remember, I love, I love your pointing out that they remember the words that were said in a failed rebellion, two generations earlier. And they're just like waiting to say them again. That's powerful. And it's striking to me that just between, between verse 16 and verse 17, it's like the meaning of the words Israelites has shifted. That like the conflict over who gets to control the name also sounds familiar from sort of the rest of history, but like the contemporary world as well. But the power of the word Israel is really strong. And to whom does that apply and who gets to claim it? And here that, you're exactly right, that has shifted to the North. Okay, should we see what's happening in the North after all this? Yes. Okay. We skip a few verses ahead and we're going to pick up In verse 25, Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He moved out from there and fortified Penuel. Jeroboam said to himself, now the kingdom may well return to the house of David. If these people still go up to offer sacrifices at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will turn back to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah, They will kill me and go back to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two golden calves. He said to the people, you have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one up in Bethel and placed the other in Dan. I find this text to be honestly like a little mysterious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, say more about that. I mean, I just... Okay, let's put down for a moment all of the baggage we have about golden calves. Like, let's start, let's begin at the beginning, and then we'll get to what I think is a very strange decision to make golden calves. Okay. I feel like there were other ways to try to solve this problem, Jeroboam. I'm I'm not sure why that's what you went with. (laughs) Consult your elders. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we, Jeroboam seems to be the established leader in the, for the northern tribes. Yeah. What's the problem that he's worrying about? 
It's so interesting because you can see him trying to symbolically establish his legitimacy as the ruler of Israel in a way that kind of reminds you of the way David did it in the text we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And so he establishes a fort at Shechem, which we just talked about as like the place where Abraham first came. And then at Penuel, which is the place where Jacob wrestled with whoever Jacob yeah, wrestled with. Got all the significant places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so these are my places. Like I, we, these her- these national heritage sites are under my control. So he's doing this sort of symbolic thing. And then he comes to the big one, which is whoever controls the worship of God controls the people, I think. And David has the Davidic promise. David has, David's line has a Davidic promise. David's line has the temple in Jerusalem, which has come to be understood as the only legitimate place of worship. And so there is a very close alignment between the Davidic dynasty in the South and God, very visibly so with the temple. And so he's thinking over time, if the people keep having to go to Jerusalem to worship, they're going to sort of buy the connection between God and the Davidic dynasty. And that leaves no place for Jeroboam and his descendants. So He's trying to figure out how do you control the religious life of the people. And he, Rehoboam and, and his crew have, have a huge advantage. And so Jeroboam's got to figure out what to do about that. That's how I read it. What, what else are you seeing in there? Bobby, it was so helpful for me just to hear the way that you articulated that, because I think I had been making an assumption that is really not in the text that yes, Jeroboam is, is thinking about his own uh, political power really in the same way as they're, they're not any more wicked or, you know, inappropriate than the way David thought about consolidating his power. You know, as you said, like he, and precisely the fact that, that David established headquarters in Jerusalem and then Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem Yes, interweaving those things together is incredibly powerful. Yes. But I think I had always assumed that Jeroboam wasn't trying to pull the people away from the worship of the God of Israel. He just didn't want them to go to Jerusalem. I don't know if the religion part is almost or his own connection to God is almost like an afterthought here, or if that still felt important. It does seem like his, his main concern is political. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, that it reminds me of Saul. Like he's, yes. he's, he is trying to figure out how to be the political leader of a people. Yes. And David thought about that too, but he also thought about God. Like he, David did both at least for a while. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's exactly right, Amy. And so, yeah, when I say thinking about his connection to God, I mean his political connection to God, not his like devotional Mm -hmm. connection to God. Mm -hmm. The question of whether, how David, you know, like in the biblical text, yes, the, the biblical text clearly has the Davidic dynasty is the legitimate, like Jerusalem is the legitimate place. The temple is the legitimate site for worshiping God and nothing else will do. If you step behind the biblical text to the historical Jeroboam, should there have been one, then I think it's a little murkier. Yeah. Maybe David was really good in establishing the connection in the ways that people just came to accept it to be true. Whereas Jeroboam was not able to establish that, or at least the connection didn't survive in the text as we have it. So I, I don't know, like maybe, maybe David was a faithful follower of God. And so God actually was on his side in that kind of sense, as opposed to Jeroboam. Maybe they were quite similar to one another and what they were trying to do politically. I'm trying to understand why Jeroboam does what he does in a way that he's not like just a jerk face. So I feel like I need to say, even though maybe it should go without saying, it's hard as a modern person to imagine why it would be so important to go to a specific location 
to worship and that not having, like knowing that that space exists, but you don't have access to it or you Mm -hmm. shouldn't go there. That's true. If we believe the biblical account, which again, we don't, I don't actually know how widespread these beliefs were, but if we believe the idea that is put forth that really the people's sense of connection to God, like the, the, the moment of intimacy was this sort of like shared meal that happened through sacrifice yes. that happened at the temple. And so I want to say like, whatever, Jews have been living in diaspora forever. Like get over it. <laughs> yeah. But I, it's not the same. No. It's it's not the same because we don't, I mean, Judaism now certainly doesn't have that kind of centralization about it. There are, there are other ways to feel that connection. So I think what Jeroboam's worried about is real. Yes. Why on earth he decides to make golden calves as his solution, that is harder to understand. I think I know what you mean by that, but can you talk a little bit about that? Well, this is not a kind of iconography or symbolism that is present in any kind of positive way in the religion of Israel. I think that probably neighboring religious peoples used this iconography. And so maybe it felt sort of in the pop culture that was surrounding them, like a viable option. I feel like it's worth saying here, maybe like, you know, there's the story of making the golden calves and in Exodus Maybe this is too complicated to go into, but like we, I, I have heard it said that maybe that was actually written after this part. Like this was the first story and mm-hmm. then it gets, it becomes this like paradigmatic, like, oh, Jeroboam, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like how, how misled have you become? And so then that sort of is inserted back into the Exodus story. But in any case that the levels of, this is just totally not at home at all in any like yeah. Israelite worship of God that I am aware of. Yeah, you're exactly right, Amy. And that question of whether the Aaron story came first or the Jeroboam story came first, like it's a really interesting one. But if you just read the text, like we're in the narrative as the narrative is given to us, then this year, exactly like Jeroboam is replaying that story that was the like paradigmatic story of revolt against God that resulted in God almost annihilating <laughs> the whole people of Israel. And Moses had like, mm-hmm. you should know better than that. Mm-hmm. So either he doesn't know his story, he doesn't know his history, mm-hmm. uh, he's forgotten what came before him, which I think is an entirely reasonable way to read it, or he's got the same kind of you know, attraction to surrounding cultures, like wanting, you talk from time to time, which I really love about how hard it is to worship a God you cannot see or touch or feel in any tangible way. And so, you know, they've got the temple, man. And so like, here's a, here's a golden calf is at least something you can like process with your senses. Probably the calf itself is not meant to be a representation of God, but is like God's Mm-hmm. riding on that calf mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. like god in you know you were talking about the the god seated on the cherubim a few weeks ago at the ark of the covenant so this is probably some version of that but nonetheless it's a clear violation of the 10 commandments it is clearly not understanding the story of aaron and so jeroboam just in his interest for political power or his interest to consolidate worship in the north He's also made sanctuaries at places that, according to Deuteronomy at least, are not uh, legitimate places to worship God. And so the whole thing he's done here is just he doesn't get it. He gets that he needs the worship of God in order to consolidate his power. Yeah. But he violates all the principles of how one is supposed to worship God in the process. You know, Bobby, I was thinking back to the story of the golden calf in Exodus and and the way I always understand it is that, you know, Moses has been gone. Moses is the representative of God that, that the people are able to see. They don't know where he went. They're afraid. They don't like, they're afraid. They don't have a leader. Mm -hmm. 
And so their mm. fear leads them to this terrible decision. And so I was trying to f- think about that in terms of mm. Jeroboam. And it's almost mm-hmm. like, Jeroboam, you are the leader. Yeah. There's not another leader for you to look at and say, it's okay because this guy's here. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's you. You're the yeah. leader. You're supposed to be the one who connects to God and be the sort of representative mm-hmm. voice here on earth. And it's like he just skips right over that part. The fear, I think, is real that you're talking about, too, in this story, too. Jeroboam is afraid for his political stability. Mm-hmm. He doesn't trust that he himself is enough. And so he's done, he's done this thing. Yeah. The biblical text, by the way, hates Jeroboam yeah. after this moment. Like, Jeroboam <laughs> is the paradigmatic, terrible king. Yeah, he is. He shows up all the way down in 2 Kings 22 when Josiah... Uh, reestablishes the proper worship of God in Judah, and it re- references back to Jeroboam and says, "You have finally overcome the legacy." So the whole history of the monarchy, at least as it's told in the biblical text, Jeroboam is the paradigmatic evil king. And but he wasn't until just right here, like in the first part of the story, he seems kind of like the hero of the story. I mean, God picked him. Yeah, and then he did this thing, and. Like he was God's chosen leader for like 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and then went astray. Is there anything else you want to say about this section before we start to wrap up? The only other thing that I'm just noticing is that in verse 28, it says the king asked for advice and then made two golden calves. Mm -hmm. And so we have this sort of recurrent theme in this text about people in power asking somebody for advice and getting, and then making bad decisions after they making get advice. Making bad decisions, yeah. It's, it's, it, that's, it, that's, I'm really glad you raised that up because usually it's a good thing to consult other people. <laughs> I mean, I would say generally speaking, it is a good thing to consult other people. And also, you know, one could contrast this to, to a king that would go to prayer. Yeah. Or prayer and people, a combination yeah. deal. Yeah. Be good. All right, Bobby. Things are falling apart. It's a hot <laughs> mess. A hot, it's a hot mess hot in mess. Judah. It is a hot mess in Israel. Mm-hmm. What What would you want to leave our listeners with today? Well, Amy, I had sort of thought I was going to talk about generational things in this text, but our conversation has led me to thinking more about political power and the way in which this text portrays Rehoboam and I think Solomon before him in ways that are very similar to the portrayal of Pharaoh in Egypt. Yes. And for a minute, Jeroboam, who sides with the people and asks for a reduction of labor, seems possibly to be the hero of the text And then immediately after coming to power, he violates proper worship of God in order to consolidate his own power. And this is not a very inspiring (laughs) message, but this sort of amalgamation of political power and religious faith is deeply problematic in the biblical text all the way through. Like the Bible is not convinced that that is something that one can hold both of those values at the same time. Mm -hmm. And Deuteronomy, you know, is looking for somebody who can establish the, I mean, what's going to come to be called the kingdom of heaven, at least in my tradition, establish the blessed community of God in which people look out for one another and for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, and they share what they have and forgive debts and do all of these things. And the only way that a king is ever going to work out in ancient Israel and I think in modern life, is if they stick to those principles. And as you're saying, consult God about not just like, where do we worship you, but about how do we live our lives? And so in this text, we're just sort of inundated with various forms of people who are interested in political power for the sake of holding political power. Mm -hmm. And there's hardly a reference. There's not really a reference in here anyway, anywhere to anybody consulting God or legitimately worshiping God mm-hmm. about anything. Mm-hmm. Even Jeroboam, who's in the story, being sort of given God's 
stamp of approval in the previous text makes no real reference. And so I just think there's a, I think there's a warning here about the manipulations of religion in the interest of political power. And I think there's a warning here about people trying to preserve their own power by consulting other people who also have interests Mm -hmm. in their political success. And I, I assume other kinds of success as well, instead of appealing to God and trying to do right by the people in this sort of egalitarian structure that God has established as, as the right way of life for Judah and Israel. Yeah. That's what I got. What are you seeing in this text today? I think I'm seeing something that is not dissimilar, but maybe this sort of slightly less politicized version of it. Like I'm thinking of how this actually sits it's for me as a person in the world who is not a king <laughs> and <laughs> has no has no real political power. I'm thinking about this a little bit to my surprise in relationship to the the idea of humility or anava in the way that we talk about in the Jewish community, which is not just don't let your ego be too big. It is that, mm-hmm. but it's also it's like know know what is the space that is yours to take. I love up. that. Mm-hmm. And like rest into that and rest into that. Take up the right, take up the right amount of space. And I'm thinking about it in particular, I think, for Jeroboam, mm. because everything you said about him is true. And if he had been able to rest in the idea that God chose him to mm. be the leader of this people in the north. And so what do the people, he recognized what the, he recognized the the problem that the people don't have a temple to go to, but like, didn't trust himself to like, Mm -hmm. to be their Moses figure. Like he was, he was supposed to be the proverbial golden calf. I mean, not the golden calf. That's it. But like, he was their visible representative of God on earth. And it's like, it never even occurred to him. And that seems like such a crazy, like an egotistical thing to think, but that seems to have been what God wanted him to do, but he didn't do it. And I understand why he didn't do it because that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. But maybe if he had tried, there would have been another way to hold on to, hold on to the Northern Kingdom without going down this, this bad this bad pathway. I really love that, Amy. I love the concept of Anava, which you talk about on the podcast from time to time, and it's such an instructive one. But I also love reading Jeroboam as a like potential hero, like a tragically fallen possible hero in this text. It's it's cutting against the grain because he's such a bad guy in the biblical memory. He, yeah, he. But in he, this, this little text, mistake. in the first. Two thirds of this text, he's not that. He, you're exactly right. He is God's chosen leader for the ten tribes of Israel. He had a moment of possibility, mm-hmm. and he just didn't. He just couldn't. He didn't. Do it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't. He couldn't step into it. He had to rely on these things from outside cultures and other. Like he, it's like he got a. He got spooked. Yeah. You know. And so it makes me think about the times that I get spooked out of my own leadership. And it really, Mm -hmm. it, it shuts things down spiritually. Like if I'm in front of the congregation and get spooked Mm -hmm. by whatever, Mm -hmm. the prayer stinks because I, (laughs) because I get out of my, you know, like whatever I get in my head and I get too small and I get whatever. Yeah. That's real. If you bring it back to a community level too, then, you know, the community of faith is meant to be what people look at to see what God is like in the world. And the, mm-hmm. our communities also get spooked yeah. and we yes. live by values that are not our true yes. values. Yes. And we, we and, don't take a stand and we make ourselves small yeah. and we fit into the systems that are around us and we, you know, do all those things. And that was not what the call was for at this point in the story. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So next week we pick up, in the first Kings chapter 18, we will meet the prophet Elijah who comes to have quite a famous, uh, 
presence within the Jewish community. I think maybe in the Christian community also. Yeah. So we'll start to get a sense of, sense of this guy. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I'm looking forward to that conversation. All right. Sounds good, Bobby. Take care. Have a good week, y'all. You too. See you next time. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Rogue JDP, Chaz Gowing, David Von Dinkler, Devin Reynolds, Erica Nelson, Greg Allen Pickett, K.O. Nunu, Kim Mitchell, Sharon Reese, and Paul Metzloff. Next week, we meet the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 19 and 20 through 39. Until then, keep on.